Excellent. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 is where we're going to be hanging out today. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. If you follow along in your Bible, follow along in the YouVersion app. Um, when I was 16, maybe 17, I, I don't remember the exact age, when I was young and dumb, um, I, uh, I had a hard time waking up. Um, I slept well, you know what I'm saying? I slept real well. And the room that I uh, stayed in at my parents' house was like a converted garage. And so it was always too cold or too hot. Um, and at night, it was perfect, though. It was always too cold. Uh, and so I slept like an angel, like an angel's baby's baby. You know what I'm saying? It was like the next level of sleep was where I was sleeping. Uh, I, had, I had the best room. The fan was, was blasting. The air conditioner was running. It was just cold. It was the perfect place to sleep. Um, I had a room off to myself at the far end of the house, um, and, and I slept hard and I slept well. And uh, this, this created an issue, though, um, because my dad would, would be the one to wake me up uh, in the mornings. My dad goes to bed at 9 o'clock sharp because he's up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. because, and, and I'm not trying to tell you this to, like, like you know, say something weird or whatever, but, but my dad... Uh, spends about 30 minutes to an hour reading his Bible every morning, and he spends 30 minutes to an hour of prayer every morning, every single morning without fail. I've never not seen him do it um, unless I kept him awake real late watching like a Lord of the Rings movie or something like that. Um, every single morning he's up at 4.35 a.m. reading his Bible. Um, his display of faithfulness is one of the reasons uh, I, I ultimately in college decided I, I really do believe all this stuff and everything that, you know, that the Bible says is true, and, and I really want to attach myself to all this stuff because of my dad's faithfulness. And so um, he, he, he's up at 4.30, he's up at 5, and he's disciplined to do this every single morning. Uh, he, he would come in and he would try to wake me up um, because he wanted to instill within me the pattern of life that he wants me to live out, right? He's modeling it, and he also wants me to do it. So at age 16, 17, he'd be waking me up early enough that I would have a chance to get showered, get ready, grab a cup of coffee, and do my own quiet time, have my own time of prayer. Um, at 16 or 17, this was not happening. Uh, I told you I, I, I was asleep. I was hibernating in my cave every night. And in the morning, my dad would come, and he would try to wake me up, and it it would be a process every morning. The first time it would be nice and sweet. Good morning, Dave. Wake up. It's time to wake up, time to get your shower, time to read your Bible. And then he's out the room, you know what I'm saying? And so I'd hear him consciously, you know what I'm saying? I'd hear him, and I'd go, yeah, huh? And then lay right back down. And then time number two, he'd come in and get a little more uh, excitable. Uh, the fan would be turned off, the light would be turned on. Uh, maybe some music would be turned on. And even that wouldn't wake me up. Generally, by the third time, the irritation was in his voice. The blankets were on the floor. Um, you, you, you get the picture. It was quite, it was quite a, a, a battle for my dad to wake me up every morning. And this had been going on for, I don't know, a, a semester. Long enough to be frustrating. You guys get what I'm trying to say? My dad had had enough one day. He snapped. Uh, he came back. He asked me one time. I got, the, I got one time. I'm used to three. You know what I'm saying? At this point, I'm used to three. I know the rhythm. I know how we do the things. Like, I get how this works, Dad. We, we, we have, this is our thing. You know, it's cute. Um, and uh, he didn't think so this morning. He came in one time. David, wake up. That was different. 
but still didn't move me to wake up or do anything differently with my life. I, I continued to sleep. The next time, uh, um, it, this is where it gets a little, a little wild. Uh, he, the blanket immediately goes on the floor this, the second time. Um, uh, I, I then, I don't know how to describe it. I'm 16, 17. I'm not like a little tiny scrimp. You know what I'm saying? I was a beanpole, but I wasn't like a little tiny person. Like I was six foot at that point. Um, my dad's not like this huge imposing person, but the next thing I know I'm standing up. He had me by my arm and, and, and he lifted me as if I was a two-year-old out of my bed, fully out of my, bodily out of my bed, not just lifted my torso up to, you know, to a sit-up position. I was out of my bed standing up next to him. That's the next thing I knew. And he was the one who helped me do that. He then walks me gently into the kitchen. And he stands me in front of the stove. And he, said, and he, and he doesn't even say a word, actually. He, he goes, he grabs a pot from one of, the, one of the little areas down here, whatever, one of the drawers. He goes over to the sink. And it's a big pot, y'all. It's a big pot, I'm telling you. He brings it over. Boom. On the stove. We had the stove top that's not like the new ones that have like the metal, you know, like claws that hold up and you can turn on the gas heater. We didn't have that. We had the plug-in kind, you know what I'm saying? The kind you didn't even know was hot or not. That kind. We had that kind. It clanged down. It's a very distinct noise if you know what I'm talking about. He clangs it onto the stove top. He turns it up to high and he says, you will stand here and you will watch this water until it boils. And then he left because he's an OG. And he walks out the room. Because he walks out the room. He just left. And I'm standing there, 16, 17-year-old, in my boxer shorts, in the middle of the house, in the kitchen, very, uh, very um, not happy. Can we say it that way? Uh, I, was, I was really upset. My stepmom, in fact, entered the room at one point to see me standing in front of the stove looking at a pot of water. And she's like, what is happening? And, uh, and at that moment, my dad pokes around, pokes around the, the fridge and says, we're doing something. And then, he bought, he, and then he moves it back. It's like he was always there. I, I, he wasn't around when I was looking for him. But as soon as she walked in, he pokes his head around, and she's like, okay. So she does the slow walk back. She knows something's up. So I stand there for, I don't know, the next 15 minutes, 12 minutes. It was a big pot. It took a while for it to uh, heat up and boil. And I'm sitting there the whole time going, this is stupid. I hate this. You know what I'm saying? Grinding my teeth and talking under my breath, and I'm all frustrated and whatever. And at about minute nine or eight of this 12-minute saga, my dad comes in and he's leaning against the counter far into the kitchen. You know how, you know how guys lean on the counter. He's got his cup of coffee. And he just, he's, he's not really looking at me, but I know he's looking at me. He's just kind of hanging out, you know, doing his thing, looking around, taking inventory of the kitchen, I guess. I don't know what he's doing. And I'm sitting over there at the stove watching this water boil. Eventually, it, it begins to boil. I say, Dad, it's, it's boiling. Now what? You know what I'm saying? Uh, he walks over. He turns the stove off and he says, David, watching you wake up in the morning is like watching water boil. He said, we will do this every morning until you wake up on your own. And guess what? I never had an issue after that. <laughs> I never had an issue after that. That's the most creative discipline I've ever heard of in my life. Um, 
I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a fan of creative discipline. It makes me kind of excited for what teenage years will look for, like in my house. I'm going to be asking my dad for ideas, I guess. I don't know. I think he was inspired that morning because that's not usually his mode to be kind of weird that way. Like, he's just kind of a normal guy. But anyways, I, I, I will forever remember that moment because of being awake is not just not being asleep. Being awake is being conscious, being aware of what is happening in your life and how you're being perceived by others, how you're affecting others, and how others are being affected by you. Does this make sense? Being awake is more than just not sleeping. There is more to it. I want us to look at Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 today, because Paul has a charge for us. Let's start in verse 11. Besides this, pause, this includes, besides this, includes everything that Paul has been talking about to this point. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, all the way to Romans chapter 13, verse 10, there is a list of things that Paul gives us as examples of why it's beautiful to live for Christ and what it could look like to live for Christ. We don't have time to read through all those verses, so I'm just going to give you the list of things that we are supposed to be, the things that we are supposed to do if we are linked with Christ in a relationship with him. Here's the list. Be a living sacrifice. Be transformed by God's word. Don't think too highly of yourself. Be a member of the body. Be genuine in love. Outdo one another in honor. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of other believers. Show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony. Meet evil with good. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live peaceably. Never avenge yourself. Feed, clothe, and serve your enemy. Be subject to the government and to the authorities. And finally, oh, love. This is the list that Paul gives us for what it should look like to be a Christian. And he says, besides all of that, I've got another reason for you to seek after Christ, to pursue him with all of your life. See, Paul, in all of Romans, really the whole book is about one thing. It's about the gospel, but it's about linking our life to the gospel. It's about linking the way we live with our justified identities in Christ. We have been justified, meaning our spiritual bank account has been paid for. We have nothing left to do. God has granted us his unmerited favor, and via his sacrifice on the cross, and three days later, being raised from the dead, his resurrection, he has secured forgiveness of sins on our behalf, and all we have to do is place our trust and faith in him, and we will also be saved being granted his very own resurrection life in our life. So when we die, we don't truly die. We get to go and be within his presence forever and ever. What he's wanting to do now is say, because of this, because you've been justified, now this is the way that you should live. And so Paul will say, now besides all that, I've got another reason for you to live a certain way. He'll go on to say in verse 11, you know the time. Besides this, you know the time. I want to pause again and look at this. Paul is trying to put the readers of the Roman letter and us into the right, uh, um, into the right, I'm trying to think of the word, into the right mentality as, as far as the way we view time. He wants, us, he wants us to view time in a very specific way. He wants us to, to put ourselves correctly into history. Here's what I mean. We should not romanticize the past or idealize the future. We should live where we are right now. We should not romanticize the past because it wasn't always perfect back when. And we should not overly idealize the future. Now, we can be optimistic for the future, but we should not idealize it 
as if it's going to be so, so different because tomorrow I'm going to pick up a lucky penny or something like that. That, that God wants, Paul, Paul wants us, rather, to place ourselves correctly in history, and he does this by using a very specific word. He uses the word, uh, Greek word, kahiros. Okay, there's two, well, there's more than just two, but there's two kind of main uses for the word time in Greek. There's kahiros, and then there's chronos. Chronos is like a sequence of events. It's where we get our word chronological. It's just things happen in a series. Kahiros is something significant, like my anniversary today. July 28th is, is my anniversary. This is a significant date to me. You know what I'm saying? Seven years. Oh, yeah, you don't have to. Okay. Yeah, cool. Go ahead. That's fine. Yeah, Rachel's really great. She's awesome for putting up with me for seven years. So uh, uh, it, this is a significant day to me. July 28th might not have any specific or special meaning to you, but to me it does. Kahiros means significance. If I said September 11th, 90% of the room would understand what I mean without having to explain anything else. Before 2001, it was just a day. After, it is a day of history, of significance, of meaning for all of us. And it doesn't always have to be something bad, right? It doesn't have to be a tragedy for it to be significant. But, we, but what, I, what Paul's trying to do is say that you live in an historic time. And that we need to place ourselves in the correct mentality to view time uh, um, not as... Not as well, if I just do this thing, or if it was just like it was, but rather we need to be where we are as we are living for Christ right now because our moments matter. He's wanting us to internalize this view that our time matters. And listen, you live in an historic time. You can travel anywhere in the world within 24 hours. That's wild. Think about that. That has not been the case for all of human history until the past like probably 50 years, maybe even 30 years. You can go anywhere in a day. You could eat six different types of cuisine in about three hours in about a 40-mile radius. Right now, and maybe even less 40, than a 40-mile radius. But I'm just talking about the good ones, you know what I'm saying, the good restaurants. You could go and eat six different types of cuisine that quickly. You can access any book instantly. Almost any information is available to us, and not like at the library that we have to go find, but right here in my pocket. That's nuts. That's crazy. No one else has had this type of ability. We can communicate with somebody across the world instantaneously. At least where we live, there is unprecedented freedom and access to social, political, and economic movement. We are uh, in a complex political, economic, and cultural system which has created untold prosperity and opportunity for you and I. You live in an historic time. And Paul wants you to recognize that you should live on purpose because you were placed on purpose. God intentionally put you where you are in your time period, in your geographical location, in your particular family, and amongst your specific neighbors because he wants to use you. Because you are his ambassador, if you know him. Because you are a little Christ Christian, a little Christ. You are to be God to the people around you and God wants you to recognize that either you will be used by your present age to indulge in yourself or you will recognize the present age break free from the cog of the system and rather live for Christ you live in a historic time a time like no other in history so Paul will go on to say this for us in the rest of verse 11 the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Okay, that's a little confusing. Salvation is closer than we first believed. When you first believed, that was your salvation experience. You were saved by Jesus Christ. What he means here by salvation is that ultimately when Christ comes back and the new heaven and the new earth is made. So when we see for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, what Paul is saying is that Christ's return is closer now than when you first believed. So the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. Here's Paul's charge for for us today. Besides all the things that we just looked at, there's something specific he wants us to see today. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. Hey, just give your neighbor just a little, you know what I'm saying? A little, yeah. Wake up. Well, what does it mean to be awake? For Paul, it means that you have the ability to consciously evaluate this present age, and instead of being swept up into it, you engage it for Christ. The other day I was snoozing. I'm a good sleeper, y'all. I don't have problems. Some of y'all have problems sleeping, and I just, I don't even get it. Like, when you talk about it, I'm like, it, man, that, that's terrible. <laughs> that's all I can say. I can't, like, I can't even commiserate with you because I don't even know what you're, what you're talking about. I sleep in two seconds. You know what I'm saying? You give me cold, lay down. I'm, I'm a, it could be on the ground. It doesn't even matter. I could probably fall asleep right here if you just gave me five minutes. You know what I'm saying? I was snoozing the other morning. Rachel's saintly and I'm pretty sure recently canonized parents took our children and had them stay the night at their house and we didn't even ask them to. That's what sainthood looks like, grandparents. You can be canonized as well. All you have to do is ask your kids if you can watch the grandkids for one night. It was amazing. It was amazing. They're the best parents ever. And and, and so Rachel and I, we stayed up late watching Stranger Things. We ignored the laundry and we just existed. And we didn't have to go, what was that noise? Why is there no noise? Someone's doing something. It's too quiet. We didn't have to live with that apprehension of, of, of trying to tend to our children and pay attention to them. Our parental roles reverted into our independent state. And our priority was only our enjoyment and ourselves. That doesn't happen often when you have kids. Now, I'm not paying like the worst picture ever if you don't have kids yet. Our kids are wonderful and I love them very, very much. I'm not trying to paint a terrible picture. But it is nice when the grandparents who are saints come and get them sometimes. So the next morning, Rachel had plans to sleep in because she's a mom, and that's not a thing anymore. Moms? All right, I'm preaching today. So I was up for class. I teach Chinese kids overseas. Um, So I was up for class early, and uh, I I, I laid back to just get a quick snooze, about like an hour, you know what I'm saying, just a quick little snooze, and I heard a knock on the door. And I knew it. I knew it right away. I bolted up. And my first conscious thought were, the kids are here. (laughs) And I incoherently shake Rachel. Rachel, wake up. Your parents brought the kids back. See, that morning, Avalyn wanted to come home. And she wanted to see mommy. And she was insistent. She didn't stop from the moment she woke up till after breakfast. She was asking Nini and Pawpaw, please, 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 I want to go see mommy. And Nini and Papa, who are suckers, because they're wonderful, they're saints, guys, of course they're suckers. They looked at her, and they said, okay. And so we missed all the phone calls about asking us, should we bring them home? Uh, we are bringing them to your house. We missed all that because our phones were either dead or somewhere else in the house. So we missed all that. We didn't even know that they were coming back. But the door knocks. We bolt up. 
We're wide awake at this point. We spring into action. We move the pile of laundry that we had ignored the night before, and we begin to accommodate our home to accept our children back into the house and our parents who are walking back in. Once we woke up, the people that were in our lives required that we lived in accordance with our role as parents and the priority at hand, which was to tend to our kids. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. What does it mean to be awake? It means that we live our lives in accordance with our identity as Christ's followers, and therefore our actions must reflect the priorities that are at hand. Christ's priority for you is in verse 12. It is to live in the light. Let's look at it. The night is far gone, the day. Somebody say the day. It's at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The day is a specific Old Testament reference. The day was a a term used by the prophets to talk about when God would come back when he would destroy all, his, all of his enemies and he would bring all those who were faithful to him, to him, and then he would create the new world without all this strife and pain and all this other stuff. We now understand that in light of Jesus, that that is Christ's second coming, but in the Old Testament they didn't know Christ, Jesus particularly, they knew that God one day would come back and do this. Paul is calling attention again to the fact that salvation is coming. Christ is coming back The day is at hand. Now, Paul really felt that the Lord's return could be at any moment. He uses phrase, sorry, he uses language, not only here in Romans, but elsewhere in in your uh, New Testament letters, specifically Thessalonians. He uses language to talk about however close it really is. Now, now Paul's too humble to make predictions. Like, he's not watching, like, signs of the earth to, like, see what's going to happen. He's too humble for that stuff. He's not telling you when it's going to happen. He's not giving you specific dates because Jesus himself says no man will know the time. We'll come like a thief in the night. No one's going to know when God is coming back. And it's not that we shouldn't be paying attention to what our scripture says, but, but Paul, Paul's wiser than this. He doesn't make predictions. That's not his business. However, he does use language to talk about how pressing it will be. Because for Paul, his actions and our actions matter because Christ will come back. Christ is coming back. So because he's coming back, there needs to be a lived and practical daily application in our lives. It ought to look like something. It ought to be like something because his return is closer than when we first believed. This is what he'll tell us it should look like. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul wants us to spring into action as if the door is knocking. I didn't didn't have five minutes to gather myself and get a cup of coffee before the kids walked in. I had to be a parent as soon as they walked in. I had to go back to that role right away. No ifs, ands, or buts. My kids are here. This is what I have to do. This is the priority that is at hand. Paul is calling us to spring into action because Christ is knocking at the door. He will return. He wants, Paul wants us to shake off our old identities. He wants us to not find our identity in our work or in our spouses or our relationships. He doesn't want us to find 
our identity in thinking we're this or that type of person. He wants us to find our identities in Christ as his follower and as his child. He wants us to act as though his return will be happening, as if it's real, as if it's close at hand. Therefore, the people in our lives need to see us as the type of Christians that act in accordance with our identity. How real does that feel to you? How pressing is Paul's charge that Christ is coming back? How often do you think about it? I can say for myself, I'll use an I statement, not that often. Because I have a really nice car, uh, I've got an 86 C10 Chevy, you know what I'm saying? I'm riding in style, comfort. You know what I'm saying? I got air conditioning in the mug. I'm riding in style. It's wonderful. I've got a great house. I've got wonderful friends. I've got a great wife and great kids. I've got a great family. I've got a great church family. So I don't often think about Christ's return because my life's pretty comfortable. And I'm starting to put on a little dad bod, you know what I'm talking about? Starting to be a little more comfortable, starting to act a little more comfortable, starting to feel a little more comfortable with my life. And so I don't often think about how pressing Paul's charge is for me to think about Christ's return because besides all this, Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, there won't be any more choosing at that point. You won't have the option to be in his kingdom. Because when he comes back, that's it. And so either you'll be in his kingdom because of your belief in the gospel, because you've placed your faith and trust in him as your personal savior, or you'll still be in your own kingdom, which won't be a real kingdom when his is established. This is why Paul tells us to walk properly as in the daytime. So he's continuing this metaphor Okay? There's nighttime and daytime, and once you're awake from sleep, it should be the daytime. Now that we're awake, we should make it our aim to not live in the darkness. Mama always said, nothing good happened after midnight. She always said it. Nothing ever, no, nothing ever good happened. And she's right, isn't she? Because you can hide pretty good at night. That's when most people are sleeping, not paying attention to the actions that you're taking. Once we're awake, though, we should live like we are in the daytime but we should live like we're in the light, putting off the things of the darkness. We should not engage in the things that are common to our culture. Now, we read this list in verse 13. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality, not quarreling, and jealousy. And some of us are like, I don't even deal with half that list. This is, I'm nailing it. I'm doing so good. I think that Paul's writing a uh, kind of a contextual thing here. I think this is specifically for the Romans. I think if he were to write specifically to Cornerstone Baptist Church today, he might say something like this. Walk properly as in the daytime, not in materialism and self-indulgence, not in sexual immorality and pornography, not in social media arguing and constant political debates, not in passivity and too much entertainment, and not in jockeying for popularity. That might be what he writes to us today. I don't think many of us are dealing with some of the things on this list, but I think that the list is not the point. And we want to make the bad list the point because we look at the list and go, uh, X, I'm not doing that. X, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Ooh, I'm really, I'm a good Christian, man. Look at me. I'm not doing that. I'm not, ooh, I'm only doing one thing on this list. I'm only jealous. What's up? I'm doing so good. And so we missed really the best part of the verse. 
or the charge of the verse and what it really should be all about, which is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about the list that you're doing or not doing. It's about are you putting Jesus Christ on? Are you making no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires? Are you suffocating the things that aren't of Christ in your life and putting them to death and instead putting on the things that he asks you to put on? In 2019, Paul is still telling us to deny yourself. That is, that is completely anti to what our culture says. You can have food in less than five minutes that's hot and cooked by somebody else for less than five dollars. That would be, that would be uh, incomprehensible to people we hang out with in India who spend two hours getting a fire ready, sitting by it, preparing the, the water that they had to go probably draw themselves somewhere. There, there is no such thing as instant gratification. But we have it, and we have it in spades. Don't gratify your flesh. Deny yourself. Are you awake enough that you can see the present age's desires and formulas for success? Or are you living only in them because it's the air we breathe? Have you been able to assess where you are and how you are or are not putting the Lord Jesus Christ on his values, his attributes, and his characteristics to be a part of your life. See, we're supposed to only live in allegiance to Christ and nothing else. Put on the Lord Jesus. This is active. It's not passive. When you put your clothes on this morning, a machine didn't do it for you. Hopefully, that'd be weird. We're not in the Jetsons yet, I don't think. Um, uh, ho- hopefully, uh, hopefully somebody else didn't dress you this morning. Uh, hopefully you dressed yourself. I mean, if you can't dress yourself, that's a different, a different thing altogether. I get that. But hopefully you had the agency to put on your own clothes this morning and you had, you had to decide that. Okay? Uh, it's an active statement. It's an active idea to put on the Lord Jesus because we know intuitively in our hearts that we'll tend to drift off to sleep, especially when it comes to Jesus. We'll just be half awake, half asleep as we kind of bump on down the road. And, you know, one day we'll just wake up in heaven and we'll be all brand new. And, you know, maybe I won't have as many treasures as somebody else, but, you know, I'm in heaven. It's all good. And I just don't think that's the type of Christianity that even is Christianity. I think that's use of God for his stuff rather than a relationship with him. And, and, And what Paul talks about, putting on the Lord Jesus. See, faith without works is dead. That's what James 2.26 tells us. Faith without works is dead. So we can believe in all of this stuff. We can believe in the gospel. We can believe uh, that Jesus will return. We can believe in the list that we've seen through, throughout Romans. We can believe all this stuff, but if you're not living it out, do you really believe it? That's the question. And that's the question you might need to ask yourself this morning what will our faith in Christ prompt us to do in light of his return? He's coming back. He's coming back. How are you living in light of his return? I want you to think personally for a moment because the scripture is asking you today, what do you need to put off in order to put on Christ? What do you need to put off in order to put on Christ? For me, I'm challenged to stop being so apathetic Christ is coming back. Do my neighbors know that? 
Now, maybe that's not the first conversation we have. Hi, neighbor. Christ is coming back. Did you know that? That might not end well. You know what I mean? Um, that, that cold call style of evangelism may not end well. I, I might need to build a relationship with him first in order to share that news. But even still, am I living with purpose? Now, it doesn't mean I can't have a day off. This is, this is the opposite side where God's working on me. So God's working on me in two ways. He's, he's saying, don't be apathetic. And he's also saying, okay, now that you're not being apathetic, don't work so hard. You need to take a day off. Because what I'll do on my day off is I will say, okay, I need to do some stuff, or I need to think about the stuff that I need to do. He says, chill out, I've got it. You're trying to control everything. I didn't know I was a controlling person until I got married and had kids. I thought I was pretty chill. Um, And then now there's all these different preferences in my house. And there's different opinions. And there's different valid opinions, you know what I mean? But I don't like that it's valid. Because I want my way. And so do my kids. And so does my wife. And so do I. And we have to all coexist together in this. And I realize now that I'm a really controlling person. I want things to be a certain way. And I want, and I want my work to be so effective that when I have my time off, I don't have to think about it. But because I'm trying to control everything, even when I'm in my time off, I'm still controlling it via my thoughts. And God says, Relax. I've got it taken care of. In fact, that's a part of what Sabbath really is, is that we would stop, pause, and rely on God instead of our own efforts over and over and over and over again. So he tells me, stop spinning your wheels. Chill out. Stop trying to control everything. I've got it under control. Put put my attributes on. Put on gentleness and meekness. Put on self-control, David. self Control. Self-control. Not control of everybody else. That's what God's working on me with. What's he working on you? What are some areas you need to put some stuff off in order to put some things on? I recently, um, uh, while I was at camp, I just kind of had a moment with the Lord, and, and I, uh, I realized I need to stop being on my phone so much. You've heard me preach in the past six months, and I've said this before, but I wasn't actually doing anything about it. You know what I'm saying? I would talk about it, but not actually do it. And so what I've done recently is I put on um, like a timer thing on your phone. You can go in your phone into like the screen, screen time portion of your settings, and you can tell it, I'm only going to spend X amount of time on these apps or on social media as a whole or whatever. And I did that, and it's painful. <laughs> when the hour comes up, all the apps go dark, and you can't click on them. Well, you can, and you can ignore the limit. But you have to consciously decide to ignore the limit. And I'm, oops, someone's, someone's on it. Someone, you just heard the Siri, the Siri button talking to us. Someone's about to do it. Um, I, I, I have to press the button to ignore the limit for 15 minutes or ignore the limit for the day. And I have to consciously decide whether or not I'm going to engage with my phone or my family. God's working on me. He's working on me. I don't know what you need in your life, but I know that there is some specific aspect of your life that will need some extra attention because, listen, Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. Do you realize it? Do you realize that he's coming back? Do the people in your life realize that he's coming back? Are you living with urgency to that fact? He wants us to prioritize him 
and our identity as his followers above everything else. Now, a sermon cannot slow walk you through transformation. It can't. Community is the only thing that will do that. Not connection. Connection and community are two different things. I think we confuse connection with community and we think that Facebook is a community. It's not. It's a place to connect. Um, even maybe some of your best friends that you, you made in college or made outside of whatever. I don't know if you're like a military person or whatever. I'm just saying if you have connections, you see those people maybe three, four times a year. Now, that's a connection. That's not your community. It doesn't disqualify the love and the mutual history that you have together and the fact that you can just pick up the conversation and go right from there. I'm not, I'm not talking about the value of the connection, but it's not your community. The community that you have are the people you see on a daily basis. The people you interface with regularly, that's your community. And where we get things mixed up is we, we want to just have connection because community means that I'm known. Community means that there has to be some sort of confession. Community means that we all have to live with the tension that we're all a little bit hypocritical. That'd be kind of scary, though, just for somebody to know that I'm not like this perfect pastor person. Oh, no. What will they think of me? And I'm making fun of myself a little bit, but really I think about that. What will you think of me if you knew really who I was? If you knew what my wife knew about me, would you want me on stage? Here's what I'm saying. In community, though, not only will you be known, which is kind of scary, but you'll be held accountable to be more. Community is where God grows you. Connection will never grow you. Community is the only context in which a God will grow you. Uh, I was thinking about this, um, and I, I talked about this at the young adult meeting that we had on, on Friday night. Uh, why does God walk in the garden with Adam and Eve? Because relationship is where hearts get transformed. Not in just commands and rules and just a touch point. God didn't create everything and then just leave it alone. He was invested in it because the relationship is how he was going to have Adam and Eve formed into more of his image. Isn't that beautiful? That's why he walked with them and that's why you have to walk with one another well. A sermon cannot change you. It cannot transform you. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit's the only one that can transform you. And ultimately, you have to be linked up with the Holy Spirit and partnering with him every day to live the way that he's asking you to live. But further, the only way that you're going to find your blind spots is by other people helping you to find them. I was listening to a pastor that I really respect. He's a massive introvert. And he had a, a spell of burnout in his ministry. And he realized, I'm talking about community, but I'm not living it. And he, he said something that challenged me to my core. Um... He, he said, he said now that I'm in community, now that I'm, so he realized he wasn't living in community, so he started to develop community with some, some men in his church, people that he interfaces with regularly, and they've become dear friends to him, but it's taken work, it's taken effort, okay? He, he now, because his community is so vital to him and because he wants to live such a life of, of, of honor and above reproach, that he and the men in this group, really all the families together, they do their home budgets with one another. I was shocked. I've never heard of that level of accountability. Can you imagine somebody calling you up and saying, hey, how did you spend your money on your entertainment this week? 
I'd be in so much trouble. I'd be in so much trouble with my accountability people. I'm just, right? How much did you spend on Starbucks? Isn't that wild? But listen, it's not community because we're trying to be moral police. It's community because we're trying to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. At our church, our DNA is community. At our church, we want to see discipleship be the thing that matters to you. Church is so much more than Sunday morning. Church is so much more than Sunday morning. Listen, this is the time to connect with one another. This is the time to see your community, but community is lived out of these walls. Our DNA, our very DNA at this church is to go and make disciples. Where we make disciples or the way that we make disciples is via relationship, via community with one another. If you're not engaged in discipleship, then you are effectively stunting your growth. Listen, you'll still grow. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that a sermon won't help, and I'm not saying that your, the podcast that you listen to won't help, and I'm not saying the books that you won't read will help. Of course they will help. Of course they'll build you up to know Christ more, and of course those will be ways that you put on Christ, but community is where God desires to grow you because in community you are known. So here's my question for you. If you're in a discipleship community, are you really known or are you kind of half known? Because if you're half known, you're half growing. And listen, it'll take some time to build that relationship. I get that. But don't use that excuse for three years. People in your life that are your disciple leaders want to know you. They want to know every part of you because they want to help you grow. And that's a mutual back and forth thing. They're not just a highfalutin leader that doesn't have to share any of their life either. It's not how it works. We want you to be a part of discipleship because that's where God will grow you. We want you to be a part of discipleship because that's Christ's mission for us. Listen, our identity is that we're his children and we're his followers, but his mission is for us is that we are to go and make disciples. Before we painted this room all gray, there was just a, a tagline in this same color that was on the back of that wall underneath the clock, and it said, reaching the world for Christ by making disciples who? You guys know it. That's our mission, and that's who we are. If you're not in community, you are stunting your growth. You are stunting your ability to put on Christ. Go talk to Pastor Jeremy. He's the guy who plays piano. Go talk to him. He's over our discipleship. Go talk to somebody at the front desk this morning and see how you can invest in what's happening in our church. And maybe, maybe you're one of the people in here who's like, well, I've tried it, but I just, it didn't really connect. Try to connect again. Just because it didn't work the first time doesn't mean it won't work the second or the third. You get what I'm trying to say? Not every church is for everybody. Not every person is for every person. We don't all have to be best friends in here. But God's call is that you would try your best. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you awake? Have you assessed how you're living? Is it in accordance with your identity as Christ's follower? How many times do we have to hear that money is not the answer before we really believe it? I guess we have to live it. I guess that's one of those things that we really have to live. We can't just listen to the hundreds of stories we've heard about people who attain success and not believe their story. You guys get what I'm saying? How many stories do we have to hear of people who get success and fame and money, who hit the home run at the whatever, and they're not happy? 
How many times do we have to hear that to realize that it's not just the next relationship or the next house or the next car or the next phone or the next whatever that will make us satisfied? It is only by putting on Jesus Christ, recognizing our present age has nothing for us. We have to see beyond our culture. We have to be awake and conscious to our decisions in order to live for Christ, break out of being a cog in the system and rather live for Jesus. Maybe you're struggling to even understand what I'm trying to say right now. You don't know what it means to be awake. Well, let's go back to the list because Paul's not disqualifying this list that we looked at in Romans 12, verses 2 all the way to chapter 13. Maybe you could start here. I guarantee you you're not nailing everything on this list. Maybe you should start with something here in order to begin to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a living sacrifice. Be transformed by God's word. That means you have to read it. Don't think too highly of yourself. Be a member of the body. That doesn't just mean you show up. It means you participate. Be genuine in love without pretense. Don't be fake. Don't smile at people when you hate them. Outdo one another in honor. Be fervent in spirit. That means go after the Lord seriously. Serve him by serving others. Rejoice in hope. Be patient. Be constant in prayer. I know none of us are nailing that. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of other believers. Show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony. Meet evil with good. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live peaceably. Never avenge yourself. Feed, clothe, and serve your enemy. Be subject to the government and to authorities. And finally, oh, love. If you're awake, if you're awake, not half asleep, If you're awake, then you will impact your world. You will impact your family and everybody you know. You have to. Because if you're awake, that means you understand what reality is. And the reality is that Christ is coming back. And so you have to put him on. So we must live righteously for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are are outrageously good to us that you would want to work through us, that you would want to be a part of what we're doing, that you would have mission and meaning for our lives. You weren't satisfied to just create us and let the world go. You wanted to have a relationship and you wanted to know our hearts and you wanted our hearts to know yours. What a blessing that is. Help us to recognize our present age and help us to recognize where we have not put you on Help us to put off some stuff in our lives. Help us to look at the list that we can find in Romans chapter 12. Help us to be fervent for your spirit and help us to pray constantly and help us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Give us a vision of what it might look like to engage our community, our neighbors friends, the people in this church for you. Hold us accountable as we sidle up next to people who want to see us grow and who want to see us progress to put Jesus on more and more. There's something that you're asking me to do today. There's something you're asking each one of us to do today specifically. Clue us into that as we spend these moments in prayer. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I'm going to give you a chance now. 
Listen, he wants you to wake up and realize that you're a part of a larger system here that you don't have to be. You can break out of this system of indulgence to self and you can be a part of his mission, which is the glorification of his name and making much of others honor. It's a beautiful mission that we have that God has given us. If you'd like to be a part of God's family, if you'd like to become a new believer in Christ, then just follow along as I pray. Make the words your own. Say something like this. Dear God, thank you that you love me and that you see me and that you know me. And that despite the fact that I haven't done everything perfectly, that even the list we we looked at today, I have not done that perfectly for myself or for others. I've gone against your commandments. I haven't had a relationship with you. I know that I've sinned, but I, but I know that the gospel is true and that Jesus came to forgive me of my sins. I believe that he can, and I accept that forgiveness today. Would you change me, make me new? Would you wake me up? I want to become your follower. I want to become your child. Help me to live as though you are real and as though you're coming back one day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made any kind of decision this morning, we'd love to know about it. Come up to the front. If you need to join a church that doesn't just talk about godly stuff but wants to talk about God and live for him and put him on, come be a part of this one. Come join with us. If you need to be a part of discipleship, talk to Jeremy. Not right now he's playing, but talk to Jeremy. Talk to the welcome desk. Let them know. If you're in discipleship already and you're not fully engaged, now's the time to engage. Go all in. Be serious. Put on your community. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you made a decision to follow Jesus as your personal Savior this morning, come, please. Let us know at the front. Would you stand as we close and sing?